Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to PhD Pandemic Episode 2. It's always good when you make it to the second episode of anything, I think. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm going to be uh, hosting this podcast today. Uh, as I said last time, I'm doing a PhD in digital health ethics. I'm sticking to that title for now. Um, and on the line, I've got Danish, who is doing a PhD in the law school. Hi, Danish. Hey, Tim. Yeah. How's it going today? How's what day of um lockdown are you in? Of social distancing are you in? Um yeah, so I'm on the day where I've forgotten what day it is. So <laughs> 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 Yeah, so I figured at some point it's just healthier to stop keeping count. And um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is how we live now. <laughs> Yeah, I I feel you. Um, I I initially I thought maybe I should get like one of those uh, Christmas chocolate calendars to keep track of the days, yeah. but then I thought that's probably not the best um, best for my health or best for my mental health either. <laughs> yeah, that sounds wise. <laughs> um, so obviously in this lockdown, we've been told now here in Victoria that we can only go out for essential reasons, and one of the essential reasons was to buy puzzles. Have you been out to buy any essential puzzles lately? Um, I have resisted um, as tempting as that that possibility was. Um, yeah, I, I did um, a, a bit before um, the lockdown happened. I did pick up really crucial aids to pass the time. Uh, one of these was a ukulele and the other was a Nintendo Switch with Animal Crossing. And yeah, so those were my essential. Amazing. Things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so big question, uh, what did you name your Animal Crossing Island? Yeah, so I, I'm pretty predictable this way. I named it Love. So my Animal Crossing is then on Love Island. Um, also, you know, a show that I've spent way too much time watching. So, yeah. That. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, I named my Animal Crossing Island New Tasmania, just in case I don't get back to actual Tasmania at any point soon. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to get all my Tasmanian friends to get Animal Crossing and we can just um, create a whole new Tasmania online. You know, that's, <laughs> that, that, that sounds utopian in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you've bought a ukulele. Yeah. Can you play the ukulele? Um, I can now. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. I, I oh, so I've, you've I've learned had, to play? Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. I've had so much time. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think I've just been picking up chords, playing like really totally random jingles. But yeah, it 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 it's oddly quite not oddly. I mean, it's predictably quite healing in a way. So. Hmm. So I'm going to take a quick guess that your PhD is not in the art of ukulele. Can you tell me a bit about what your PhD is on and if you are now going to integrate the ukulele into the PhD? Um, yeah, that's <laughs> hard questions. Um, yeah, we'll put, putting the ukulele aside. So, yeah, so the PhD kind of comes from the work that I've been doing over the last few years. I think it's useful to just tell you a bit about that. Um, I used to work as a human rights lawyer in India, and a lot of my work was with queer rights um, issues, um, cases. One of the big things was the challenge to the anti-sodomy law that was then eventually struck down in 2018. But there were also kinds of questions around that. And um, I also, 
at some point in uh, 2016, um, started working, um, integrating theater practice into my work. So it was through writing plays, directing and acting. And the theater here was a response to questions of the law that I was grappling with. And so what the PhD does is it kind of tries to bring those two elements of my work together. And it does this by, um, I think one of the central questions that I'm asking is how can theater and performance, how can the space that it offers us help us think more imaginatively about the law, more creatively about the law? How can we pick up on these smaller moments, these smaller legal practices that we might have otherwise ignored the importance of and see the ways in which they perform hope, perform reparative ideas in the world. So, yeah, that's roughly what I'm doing right Mm. now. Mm -hmm. So for you, did the law come first in your life or did an interest in theatre come first? What was the timeline in terms of bringing these ideas together? That's such a good question. Um, So I think I knew that I wanted to go to law school when I was in the 10th grade. Um, So just when I was essentially entering high school. Um, And I, and and I did, I did dabble in theater when I was a bit younger. My big production was a third um, grade um, version of um, the lollipop tree. And I was the lollipop fairy, which I think said certain things about me at that point. But anyway, um, so yeah, but, but I think, I think I really kind of got into theater around the time when I was in high school. So yeah, it's interesting how those two things kind of happen at the same time. Um and then even when I was in law school, I was very engaged in um, theater work. We had a, we had a dramatic society. Um, but at that moment, I wasn't looking at theater as a space of thinking about legal practice. And I think that just happened much, much later. And it happened at a moment where um, this was soon after we'd lost the anti-sodomy um, challenge before the Supreme Court in 2013. And... It was a really difficult kind of loss. I think, um, you know, it was it was a pretty strong case. Um, there was a lot of reason to think that we would win, and then and and then we didn't. And the effective result was that homosexuality was criminalized in the country. Um, and and so you were thinking about ways to challenge that idea or deal with it. And obviously, you know, going down the route of litigation was one thing that that people did, and and was then eventually successful. Another. Uh, five years later but I think for me it was also how does one make meaning in the here and now how do you kind of do practices of resistance and then theater just became this good way to think about dissent and to perform dissent and to kind of get autonomy back. Mm. I do want to ask you a bit more about the anti-sodomy laws and I guess the context but before I do when you first realized that you wanted to practice law that that was the pathway you were going down was human rights the initial driver for you or was there another part of the law that you were initially interested in? Um, So I think my interest in going to law school just came from a very pop culture based idea of what being a lawyer would entail, you know, so the steady diet of uh, law shows. And I remember particularly, you know, Ali McBeal, which is exactly what legal practice is like. People just burst into song all the time. Um, so no, but I, I think, I think that was initially the thing. So it was just, you know, I thought, oh, I enjoy making arguments and debating ideas. And this is why law school is a good fit for me. 
once I got in, I think one of the things that happened was um, you know, I realized I was queer. And uh, I think around the time I started coming out as um, a gay man, I also started coming out as a human rights lawyer. And those two things were kind of connected because um, I think queerness let me read read the world differently, kind of see things that I hadn't noticed. And then the law became such a good tool to think about those things and to to kind of work with those things. And, and yeah, and so I, I, I got really lucky that way because one of my early internships was with this place called the Alternative Law Forum in Bangalore, which, again, was a site that did really exciting work at the intersections of law, uh, human rights, and culture. And so... Eventually, right at the end of law school, um, I, I I got a job with them, and um, yeah, so I, I think it just it just kind of clicked. Mm. The um, your comment on Ellie McBeal brings back so many memories. <laughs> um, I really wish that was on a on a streaming service. I feel like that's a binge <laughs> watch that I could really get into right now. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think this. Um, that narrative that you've painted of, I guess, your view of the law being um, shaped in a way by your own um, identity is really interesting. And how is that, like, how did that process happen and how has it continued to be shaped since that point? Yeah, so I think um, at first the complicated thing was that it's it's through thinking of the law that I even thought about who I was as a queer person, because I think I first really, when I when I understood that I was queer, it was also at a point in law school where I realized that to be queer was to be criminal. So I think, um, you know, I, that 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 became a kind of challenge in, in, in you know thinking about how to come out and to thinking about you know what it would mean to live a good life and then live a good life as a lawyer, um, and then and then I think um, once once it kind of became this idea that i i wanted to i wanted to work with um laws that were discriminatory not just for queer people but but more broadly it it kind of changed around for me um and 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 i think this happened when i was in bangalore working with um activists who you know like you you don't necessarily then um work directly with the law you're often working in opposition to the law you're working in spaces where the law doesn't obviously permeate but then you you create new strategies of um, of working with it, and I think that's the other space where I learned how to think about the law, which was that um, it it doesn't have to just be this tool of um, you know either either oppression or or even like liberation it doesn't have to work in a linear way. Sometimes you can work in counterintuitively with the law to extract gains. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So. Um, we had this decision that um, came out in India in 2014, which um, recognized transgender identity. And it was a really progressive decision in one way. So it essentially said that if you um, if you wanted to identify in a gender that was not assigned to you at birth, all you had to do was um, essentially self-declare that. But it didn't really give you a process for doing that. So... So it was a flawed judgment in that sense. Now, there are many ways to deal with this. And one way you could just do is just criticize it and say, you know, the law has kind of failed us, which people did in some ways. But uh, what was really fascinating for me was a set of lawyers and activists who said, 
how do we use the limited uh, potential that this judgment has and now craft strategies that will actually make it do some work in the world. So they created, you know, these um, affidavits, for example, which enacted this idea of self-identification that the judgment had and it gave trans persons one way of activating the judgment which may not have otherwise been available. So I really liked that idea again and, and that has also kind of resonated or kind of filtered into my PhD which again is about how do you make the law work for you when it doesn't look like it's going to do that work on the face of it. So how do you find strategies? Mm. And I guess circling back to your the first point you made around the anti-sodomy laws, how did you bring that way of working into that situation when initially it seemed like the law was not going to um, support the queer community in that way? Yeah. So um, with the anti-sodomy laws, one of the things that I did was um, also work with my theatre practice. So um, what I wanted to do in this case was uh, tell a story about what it was that the judges had missed out on when they were hearing the matter or what it is that they refused to hear when they were hearing the matter. And then maybe also think about what it is that um, lawyers could do differently. And um, the, the method for doing this was going back to the six weeks of transcripts that we had in the court um, hearings back in 2012 and sift through those and identify ways in which and moments at which the judges took a story that the lawyers were trying to tell them about the way in which the law affected queer people and then just transformed it into what I just want to say is just this um, this push towards legal discourse without actually kind of making space for people's lives. So, you know, so the, the, the lawyers would essentially tell the judges that the, these are X, Y, Z ways in which queer people are affected and the judges would say, but the text of the law talks about carnal intercourse against the order of nature. It doesn't talk about LGBT persons. So how are these persons affected? And so uh, I wanted to kind of try and capture that. But I also wanted to talk about, you know, if this isn't working, if this is a tragedy that doesn't do well, how is it that lawyers can approach the court differently? And so the other thing that the play did then was it reworked what we might think of as the affidavit. So usually when you have an affidavit, a legal affidavit that's presented in a courtroom, it it shrinks the story of a life. Um, it it kind of it tends to take away complexity in some ways, and it and it 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 kind of pushes you down into this narrative of, you know, like these are the violations that I've suffered as an individual. And what I wanted to do with the play was say maybe the affidavit could also be something more joyful and just more full and you know more full of narrative details and so then you present the story of a life where the law kind of then intervened in a particular kind of way so the person is not just presented as a violation or as you know a particular violent narrative but is being presented as a human and then the, the idea was you know is would that change the way that judges listened and judges engaged Mm, okay. That's fascinating. And can I ask, since the time that you initially um, engaged with this issue, what has been the discourse since then around these anti-sodomy laws? Has there been change? What, what's changing in, in 
the culture and in the context. Yeah, so I think one of the really lovely things that um, happened, so yes, um, the, the big significant change is that in 2018, another bench of the Indian Supreme Court struck down those laws. But the, the conversations leading up to that, um, I, I think are really indicative. So um, the one of the things that happened in this new process was um, you had a set of five petitioners approach the court um, and essentially articulating their own identities as um, gay men and lesbian women and giving a narrative about their lives and their loves and how the law had then kind of affected them. And so you could, I think it was clear that that narrative then became more important to the case uh, because we already had really good constitutional rights arguments and you already had other kinds of affidavits that had been presented in the in the case before. But now it looked like stories were kind of going to be front and center. And then after those, uh, after that particular petition was filed, you had a set of other affidavits from trans persons, um, other petitions from um, um, the students from the um, uh, Indian Institutes of Technology in India come forward. And again, um, I, I thought what was quite fascinating was this investment in storytelling. And you then see that in the hearings that happen in the courtroom um, in 2018, again, where, where a lot of the lawyers are kind of trying to spin those narratives before the judges. Uh, I mean, what was also interesting was that the judges were also seem to be a lot more empathetic this time around. And I think a lot of that credit uh, goes to the activism that happened in this intervening period where, you know, it was really kind of vigorous, it was really energetic. People were just trying to push forward different ways of talking about queerness. Pop culture, I think, played a huge role here as well because the Indian film industry started producing these narratives uh, with queer people at the center in really empathetic ways. So, yeah. It really does show the power of storytelling. And I think, you know, as an activist, you know, we think about storytelling as a really powerful tool, but then seeing that brought into other areas where storytelling maybe isn't the norm, such as the law, um, and seeing that power is is fascinating. And can I ask, with your PhD, I, like I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I even though I work in in a law school, I don't know much about how people do law PhDs. What does it mean to do a PhD in this area? What type of things are you doing to answer these questions? Um, yeah, so I think this. For, so I'm now in the eighth month of my program, and um, it's been this really interesting process of just improvising different ideas and and methods and. Um, traditions of thinking and and trying to see what fits because you know i guess like i said my initial question was how can theater help us think more imaginatively about the law but one thing that you do in a phd is you say okay so you need to identify what your object is you need to identify what your theoretical orientation is and then you need to place yourself so it's kind of like a triangular relationship and you know so i I had some clear orientation of at least where I was, you know, so I, I come to this project as a lawyer, as an activist, as a theater practitioner, and I'm, and, you know, as someone who's grown up as a queer man in a place where it was criminalized. So I knew that part. Um, I knew that my object was roughly going to be the certain ways in which the anti-sodomy laws in India were resisted. So, um, so I knew that I was going to look at theater performances. 
Um, but then beyond that, the question was what else? Um, and that what else has then been a conversation with the th- third thing, which is the method or the theory, which kind of go a bit together for me. And I found that I was increasingly drawn to, as the year went on, to writing about hopeful ways of looking at the law, of ways in which you can read the law in, in a way that that sort of builds it up, that looks at what you call a reparative practice as opposed to like a suspicious practice. So you acknowledge, of course, that there is a lot of violence that the law can do, but you say, what I'm going to do right now is say, it can also do these other things in the world. And so so once I started reading those literatures, I think it then helped me kind of cast back to my object, which was these practices of resistance, and then identify a specific set of practices that weren't just resisting the law, but were also creating new ideas in the world. So then theater was one, obviously, because I'm not just saying that I have a problem with the law, but I'm also giving you a different world um, you know, where where different things happen with the law. Um, I then identified something like um, the Feminist Judgments Project, which essentially involves um, people writing, academics and activists writing dissenting judgments um, to existing actual um, court decisions. And in these dissenting judgments, they kind of ask how judges could have reasoned differently using feminist principles, essentially. And so, again, I thought that's a really interesting way of thinking about critique because you're not just disagreeing, but you're also then creating a new vision of being in the world. So I think like that's that's the way that um, it's kind of evolved for me as the year has gone on. And in this process, you said that you're up to the eighth month mark, and I kind of feel very jealous as someone who is very far past their eight month mark, and I wish I was back there. Um, <laughs> But um, how, obviously, we're in a situation of uh, being in a, a global pandemic and being in lockdown. How has this new context started to um, impact your research, but also shape the way you're thinking about yeah. your research? Look, I think the impact, I mean, the, the biggest one has been not being able to interact with my colleagues uh, at a day-to-day level and not being able to meet my supervisors in person. Um, I definitely... Um, you know, like one of the things that you're told about PhD programs is that they can be isolating. Um, but my experience at uh, the Melbourne Law School was, you know, almost like the complete opposite. So there's a lot of collegiality and I would get a lot from just the those little minute interactions that we would have. Um, and not having that um, definitely does things. So it's not just So it's not just a question of the social impact that it has, but it's also a kind of intellectual impact where you don't have those people to bounce around ideas with all day. So I think like that, that was the first one. At a larger kind of level, my research should have ideally led me to India for some fieldwork, which is unlikely to happen this year. It would have involved working with theater practitioners here. That's also very difficult to plan for now. You know, so I think like, that's one way in which um, it's been Im- impacted, um, I would say, yeah. And I guess at this point in time, we're, we're really being told, well, I know I'm being told just to uh, sit tight and, you know, once things are over, we can res- resume nor- normal life. How do you think in terms of your research, what it's going to look like 
at the potential end of this. I know that um, some of my friends are talking about the arts as a as a sector being completely reshaped. Is that something you're thinking about for your own research? Yeah. So um, there are ways in which it's going to, I think, like thematically start um, featuring in my research because if if one of the things I talk about is hope and how you can think of hope as a method, um, you know. Uh, I was telling one of my supervisors that I'm I'm finding it hard to feel like my thesis is relevant. And then, you know, he just had to remind me that, you know, at this particular point of time, maybe thinking about this idea of hope is actually quite crucial in some ways. And, 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 and so I think what's happened is that I've kind of dug back down onto that idea. So I think that, that inflects the, the shape of my PhD in a certain way. Um, I think, um, I, I'm also trying to kind of refigure or rethink what fieldwork might mean for me. And I know that a lot of people who have fieldwork more centrally in their project are doing this. But I think for me, it's, it, it's possibly a bit easier because I'm now kind of trying to look back at work that's already happened and trying to see how I can get that retrospective lens in as a, a, a viable research method. So I think like that's that's the other way. So it's kind of so instead of looking at a forward-looking ethnography, it's almost like how can we use memory as a method, which actually has been done in a fair amount of research work. But like, how do you kind of weave that into a PhD project um, in a convincing way that passes an examination? <laughs> yeah, all these questions that I think many of us are asking um, as you've gone through this process of trans transitioning from obviously working in, in an office to now working from home. Have you come up with any tips and tricks for actually being able to do any work at what is a very uncertain time? Um, yeah, so I think the the first I would say like the first ten days maybe were um, really kind of all over the place. And what really helped was actually just reading about other people talking about how they were really struggling with their productivity because you're just, you know, you're, you're just feeling bad about it. You're just feeling bad about, uh, I mean, A, you're feeling bad about the pandemic of it all. And then it's not helping that you've, you know, you've losing the ability to read and write slowly. And um, so I think just, just understanding that other people were navigating this was useful. Um, but then after that, it also became okay, we shouldn't stress about being productive at this moment, but if your work is actually nourishing to you, and so for me, when I write, it induces a kind of state of calm and mindfulness. And, you know, how do I kind of access that again? And so one thing that really, really helped was with at least two different people, um, one within my cohort and then one outside, um, setting up um, a, a Pomodoro group. And for those of us who are unfamiliar with what the Pomodoro method is, in this particular version, it involves setting a timer for 25 minutes, focusing on your task for those 25 minutes, taking a five-minute break, going back into the 25-minute cycle, and doing this thrice. And then that becomes like one Pomodoro round. So we would just call each other at the start of the cycle, express what our intention to write was, and then just get into it. And that, actually just doing that every day in the morning, um, really, really helped me through for um, the first week. Um, and it became the the one sort of calm um, and and productive bit of my day um, because yeah like I, I I definitely did need 
some of that. It, it, it just, yeah. So once, once that kind of settled in, the other thing that I realized was really, really important was to just stop reading the news all the time. I think it just, after a point, just became unhelpful. I'm really glad that I'm now fully aware of the different um, risks that we pose by just, you know, being out in the world. Um, but now I'd like to think that I've internalized those um, and I don't need the news to tell me anymore. I don't need to know more about the threats to my friends and family. I think like those have been ingrained. So now it's just about saying, okay, I'm going to stop looking at the curves. <laughs> I'm going to stop, you know, following like different kinds of disasters that are happening and just maybe, I mean, still some put, put, time, put some time aside for that, but um, say that at this point, none of this is in my power. So what is in my control is shaping how my days look and shaping what I do with them. And, and so I think that's been good also. So it's, it's also about saying, this is my routine now. And it actually involves less work than I might do otherwise, but that's okay. And it involves more, um, I'm I'm a lot more mindful now about setting aside time for absolutely switching myself off. So like whether it's the Animal Crossing on Love Island or whether it's, you know, making sure that I'm doing the Netflix thing with friends um, online. Um, and and that's, that's been an unexpected joy, actually, like just um, having this one thing to look forward to at the end of the day where it's just like a different friend or like, you know, just just continuing that strand of the show, um, you know, and, 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 and not taking that for granted, I think is, is, is something really lovely. And also just, again, just being in touch with people that I really care about uh, talking to my family a lot more. I think that also really, really helped. I really love that you've kind of picked up on this theme of just acknowledging that things can be really crap right now but also then just switching off and say I've got my dose of that and I feel like I'm at the same point I've I've watched all the news I can watch and now I've put it aside and gone okay I don't actually need to have live updates every five minutes and it's it's a healthy place to be I think in what can be a a quick moving time but just because there's new information doesn't mean it's it's helpful information yeah absolutely so a lot of us as graduate researchers are now looking around thinking Obviously, our PhDs are being impacted in lots of different ways, and we're hoping that the university will provide us some support. And I was wondering, what would support look like for you, and what type of support are you already getting, if any? Yeah. Um, so I think this would be at a few different levels. I think the first is with your supervisors, and this is where um, I feel really lucky because the thing that happens in my case is my supervisors have just been mailing me every few days, checking in, and. And even if I send a response uh, saying that I'm all right, everything's fine, because that's also what we're trained to do, right? We're trained to say that we're all right. Um, They kind of continue to check in and ask. And I think that has been really, really wonderful. I've, you know, I really needed that. Um, I think with the department, um, you know, um, I, I want to say that, uh, one of the things that I found really wonderful about um, the the response that uh, ANU sent out to its graduate researchers was um, it acknowledged the moment um, that everyone was having and it, it kind of 
made pretty clear that they weren't going to be asking for evidence-based proof of what the situation was doing to uh, its graduate researchers and just kind of automatically extending a deadline. And and I think, and I think that, I mean, reading that felt very calming, uh, even if it wasn't happening within my own university just yet. Um, because, you know, I've been thinking about this, I can see why you might want to have an evidence-based model um, for, you know, ex- granting an extension, taking a break or whatever it is. But those models work for other moments and for individual moments of crisis. Um, you know, so I had a huge moment of trauma in November, for example. One of my closest friends in the world died unexpectedly. And it just, you know, it affected everything. It, it com- You know, I had to take a break from work for a bit. But I also had all my other support systems working at that point. The world hadn't changed significantly. But right now, the world as we know it doesn't exist in the same way. This is a huge moment of upheaval. So to try and put in those evidence-based models to work right now doesn't work. And so I think like what I would really appreciate from my university is an acknowledgement of that and to actually kind of understand that, yeah, it would just be a lot more helpful to say, you know, we're we're going to just give you that extension. You don't even have to think about it as a process or a procedure. And, you know, like just focus on feeling better right now because we trust you. We know that, you know, you are invested in the PhD and we don't have to remind you that you have deadlines. I mean, I know I have deadlines. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about your, your friend. And it sounds like you got a lot of support, Ben, and hopefully we can... um find similar support for all of us, but also for people who are probably going through not just the pandemic, but also other other crises at the same time, because life life goes on, doesn't it, while we're facing this issue. So I wanted to move on to, I guess, uh, some more light and positive um, topics. And I'm asking this question to everyone I interview, because I think, I think it's a very important cultural moment to capture this topic but um apart from ukuleles and i'm hoping you're not hoarding ukuleles but is there any <laughs> item that you are hoarding or that you have maybe grabbed a few more extra items of just in case um my freezer has more um frozen cheesecakes in it than i would care to you know think about. <laughs> Uh, yeah that just felt like a really good idea back then and um you know because i think of course i i my first wave of shopping was you know i I was i thought i was smart about it and i got you know the rice and the pasta and then like just the basic provisions and i said okay you know think of it as a week at a time and then of course what i forgot was the really crucial thing which was the junk food and uh, yeah, so, so no now are we talking? Are we talking like Sara Lee cheesecake, um, or is this fancy? Oh, this is black and gold. It's not that fancy, but you know, it 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 does the job. It it yeah, it hits the spot. <laughs> that is that is amazing. Um, I spoke to Sophie a few days ago on episode one, and I I initially was hoarding Daryl Lee chocolate, but now I think I've I've recently discovered this really yummy pasta at my local IGA, hmm. and it's one of those pastas which is made from like chickpea flour and charcoal, so no one's buying it, but it is so yummy, oh and I'm God. thinking maybe I should hoard it just in case anyone else gets onto it and it runs out. <laughs> yeah these are the things to think about (laughs) 
Um, so my second, my second uh, pandemic-related um, live question is, have you got um, some top lockdown songs or um, playlists that you're currently uh, grooving out to? Yeah, so I really like walking around my house pretending I'm in a Taylor Swift video. So, yeah, so essentially, like, everything Taylor Swift has done kind of comes up. Like, the other day was kind of, like, really sunny. And so, you know, here I am on the in the little, like, backyard listening to Cruel Summer. And then, like, you know, just imagine, like, literally just thinking that I'm in the video. Like, I had my glasses on and my shades. So that was, that was really good. Um, I've been tripping on 90s nostalgia. Like, the, the Scooby-Doo theme song has been in my head for some reason. And then... Um, my one of my supervisors recently uh, mailed us uh, Bob Dylan's new release uh, Murder Most Foul and um, that that's a very different kind of groove like it feels like a dirge for our times but very soothing and and it's it's this nice 17 minute song so it's it it's 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 kind of yeah it's 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 very calming to listen to while working around the house or something so yeah I don't know how to respond I like. Scooby-Doo, I, I, right now I just want to go watch <laughs> Scooby-Doo movie so bad. Um, <laughs> um, my go-to, I've been listening to a lot of Tina Arena um, mm. and a lot of Elton John, but mm. I am, I'm really keen now to get onto some Scooby-Doo theme song tunes because um, that brings back some memories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just finding ways to soothe ourselves. <laughs> Back in more simpler times when all we had to worry about was whether or not to watch Scooby-Doo or Pokemon. Um, those good days. <laughs> Once all this is over and um, obviously we don't, we don't know when we're going to be able to return to normal life, but once it is back to as much of what we could call normal as possible, what's the one thing you're keen to do that right now you, you can't do because of this lockdown? You know, if I think about like what a good day would look like, you know, um, I, it'd be so nice to kind of just walk into my workplace, hug my friends, uh, go watch the, the Monday discounted movie at Cinema Nova and then stroll down across the road for a gelato without worrying about, you know, the end of the world. I think that would be so nice. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing day. And I'm, hoping that at some point soon in the future you can um you can do that again because yeah it's it I've kind of been surprised about how like I feel like I'm a very introverted person and that I spend a lot of time at work but now that I'm actually stuck in my room slash my workplace it's weird how much I realized I actually was doing and how many people I was seeing every day so what's what's the plan? So this is, I guess, the end of the interview, but what's the plan for the next, like, have you got a bit of a strategy to get you through what could be potentially six months? What are you thinking about in terms of, um, you've obviously got your ukulele, but have you got other potential goals or hobbies that you're hoping to um, consider? Yes, I think that's precisely it. I think like I've now finally started, you know, thinking about, what skills I might want to kind of pick up uh, because now the initial panic has subsided. I, at that point, it felt impossible to think about, um, yeah, like really anything. So um, I, I am due for my confirmation in July and I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to slowly work towards that and that seems like a nice, good, tangible goal to have. So I'm also, I feel kind of lucky that I'm early enough in the program that it's not such a such a burden in that sense. And and I have some sense of where to go. So that's going to be one tangible. I think 
um, you know, I want to sign up for music classes, music lessons online. Um, I I do have a bicycle that I recently got, and I think uh, one thing that I've just been enjoying is just at least being able to take that for a spin, and hopefully that will still be an okay thing to do in the weeks to come. And it's been really nice just taking it down completely random roads um, and just, you know, seeing parts of the city that I actually was not looking at otherwise. Um, and let's see. Yeah, I mean, that every time I take my bike out now, I think this might be the last time before we're forbidden from physical exercise outdoors. So there's a certain tinge of, um, yeah, whatever it is. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, and oh, and the other thing I think that has been really wonderful is surprisingly getting to cook two meals a day, um, mm. and and you know, I, and I think I'm steadily getting better at that, and I, I I look forward to being able to invite people home for dinner after this and being like, yeah, that is my marinara. <laughs> so can I look forward to an invite to a, a dinner party sometime in the future, uh, uh, maybe a, a very big meal? <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat today. I, I found it fascinating and I'm, I'm hoping that you found it um, good to talk through some of these topics and issues that we're all facing. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And it was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are sitting at home doing a PhD and you're thinking, I'd love to talk about my PhD topic or just talk about the world, uh, let me know. Send me an email at phdpandemic at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, you can probably try and spell my name at Timothy Cariotas. Um, Danish, have you got anything you want to plug, your Twitter or any other things that people might be interested in that you're doing? Um, yeah, so um, if you follow um, my uh, my Twitter at dshake726, um, you'll find a uh, Possibly videos of me um, playing the Scooby-Doo theme song on my ukulele, which maybe is the energy that we need right now. Uh, but, you know, at, at some point I was also um, thinking through different pieces that I'm, I'm working on and I'm reading. And yeah, I think like that's the way that I usually kind of tend to engage with the world. Wonderful. I am going to get onto that Scooby-Doo theme song ASAP after this interview. <laughs> I'm very keen. Um, so stay safe, everyone. Make sure to keep washing your hands and keeping your physical distance, but not your social distance. And uh, hopefully I'll hear from you soon and see you all on the other side in this brave new world.